Hello and welcome to Relationship Talk, the podcast hosted by Teresha Young, Relationship Master Coach. Now, each episode, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you find a deeper understanding of yourself, to set yourself up for dating, relationship, self-love and self-empowerment success. So enjoy, take notes and get ready to apply all key messages you learn today. Hello and welcome to Real Relationship Talk, the podcast hosted by yours truly, Teresha Young, Relationship Master Coach, where we have open, non-judgmental, heart-to-heart conversations about love, self-love, self-care, dating and relationships. And for this week's episode, I am being joined by the delightful Dr. Duena Welsh. Welcome to the show, Dr. Duena. Oh, thank you so much, Teresha. It is a pleasure to be here and I have so enjoyed the conversations we've had so far. So I know I'm going to love this one. Oh, absolutely. I got so excited when we thought about where we could take this conversation and there's so much to unpack. So once again, thank you for being on the show. And I'm just going to reveal much more about you in terms of who you are and what you do. So Dr. Devena Welsh is known for writing and dating coaching that relies on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep the love of their lives. A former professor in Florida, California and Texas across 20 years, she has contributed to NPR, Psychology Today and numerous other outlets and podcasts. Her first book, Love Factory, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do is now out globally in five languages. It's revised and updated edition released in 2022. Love Factory for Single Parents is the second book in the series, specifically geared for finding the right partner, not only for readers, but their families. She is an expert for Paired, the couple's relationship app. Her client practice is global via Zoom and other technologies. So thank you so much for giving us that insight. That's just a little insight. And I am super curious. I would love to know a little bit more about some of the key highlights that led you to being a science-based dating coach and author. Well, thank you so much. And really, I don't know how many people come to their profession due to having problems in that area with their life, but that's definitely how I came to mind. I was in graduate school at the University of Florida and I was doing well in my PhD program and I was doing terribly in my love life. And I thought, you know, you're smart enough to get a PhD, but not quite smart enough to figure out the dating thing. And then I had an aha moment. What if there are other people who all they study is how to find and keep the love of your life. What if that's all they do? What if I just don't know about it yet? Could I find that research? Could I apply it to my own life? Could it work? And what's really funny is that's exactly what I did. And that's just because that's how I see life. Yeah. And um, people started asking me to do it for them. And I really hadn't seen this as a career. I was doing this, but I was actually a professor full time in a psychology department at Cal State Fullerton. And gradually it occurred to me, this is what I really was meant to do. It's what I really loved doing. It's what I woke up excited about doing. Mm -hmm. And, but I put off, I put off writing a book 
And I think it was because, and a lot of women will identify with this. Do you know there's research showing that women who make C's, that make straight A's through college believe that they probably can't get an advanced degree and men who make straight C's through college believe that they probably can. Okay. There's really this whole idea. Who are you as a woman to have an idea and share it with the world? I think that's dissipating somewhat, okay. but I really held on to that until I was 42 and I needed open heart surgery. Oh. And I realized that had I died, the one thing that I really would have regretted is not having had that book out into the world to teach and help people after I'm gone. And so I wrote Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps. I'm very excited about the new edition. This is what it looks like. The new edition has the magnifying glass around the heart. The first edition has eyeglasses on it. So go for the new edition because this one has the latest and greatest information. Nothing was wrong in the first one. Thank goodness. None of the new science disconfirmed anything in the first book, but this one is updated for how people are dating right now with research that's happening right now. And there's just a lot more to it. So I encourage people to get the new edition from 2022, but it has been such a joy I, that I didn't really expect to get so much satisfaction from hearing from people who read the book. And so now I have clients all over the world, including where you're located yes. and paired, you know, the app that I was so excited to be invited. I was the first expert that they invited and they allowed me to shape the direction of the company in terms of choosing to have it based on science rather than opinion, which I'm so excited about. And uh, I love the app. It's for existing couples. And I just love that what I've done with my life is touching people all over the world, even when I'm not there. But I got to say, I think my favorite thing is actually working with clients. So yeah, um, yeah, I love it. I know that you understand what I'm saying. I absolutely understand what you're saying. And I have read your book, the Love Factory book, and I absolutely loved every single bit of it. The 10 steps, powerful. I love how you explain it in the way that, yes, it is science-based. However, it is relatable. It's not heavy reading. And actually, the way that you apply the science to real-life experiences, it gives it context. And you think, oh, I can actually empathize with that. It makes sense. It really makes sense. So I'm really curious. How do we, how do we do science in love? Is there a magic formula that we've missed? What do we do, Drayna? <laughs> so that's why there are 10 proven steps instead of one proven sentence. But if I, and thank you so much for your kind words about my book. My book is meant to be conversational. It's not a science book. Mm. It is a conversation with tons of personal examples from me and other people who've agreed <laughs> to have their example put in the book, written in a very friendly way, but the back has references. All the factual statements have a number and you can see where I got that. So it's not a science book, but it is based on science. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's not heavy reading at all. A lot of people finish it in a day. Yeah. Um, now, as far as, I'm sorry, I forgot your question entirely. Oh, the question is, how do we do science in love? Is there a special magic formula that, I've, that everyone's missed? Oh, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> the one sentence, the one sentence summary of all the science that's been done over the past almost 70 years. Can you imagine there's almost 70 years of relationship science out there? Ooh, ooh, how, how are we doing? 
the, the, one, the one sentence that would summarize all of it is, if you can find and be someone kind and respectful, your love life will probably go well. And if you can't, it won't. It's guaranteed that if you can't find and be someone kind and respectful, this is going to be a crash and burn for you. But if you can do both those things, find and be someone kind and respectful, odds are very, very high that this will work out. I mean, things can still happen. There can be someone can develop a substance abuse issue or there could be mental illness that can't be treated and derails the whole relationship or, you know, things can happen, but they're not very likely to happen that way. What's And that's what science is about. It's about putting the odds in your favor. It's about knowing what works for most people most of the time. So when you ask, you know, what well, I'm not sure you ask quite this, but how do you know what's the, what are the scientific methods being used? They come from a, as you know, you read the book, a diverse <laughs> landscape. There are studies that come straight from chemistry, straight from biology, straight from um, comparative analysis of animal behavior, insect behavior, even, and yeah. human behavior. Surveys, correlational studies where you look at, okay, if people do this, what's the usual outcome? And then of course the gold standard experiments. You randomly assign some people to do this, other people to do that, and you just see what happens. And then whatever happens, if you only varied one thing, whatever happens, it was caused by the one thing that you changed. Yes. So, and we've got all of it. We've got all these kinds of data showing us what makes for happy lifelong relationships and how to find it. And it completely transformed my life. As you know, um, I got divorced a few years ago. I had not expected that to happen because I did find someone kind and respectful, but an alcohol issue emerged and my mate did not remediate it. And long story that we don't need to go into, but I'm, look, you can do all the things right. And it doesn't make you queen of your partner. Yes. This doesn't mean that you become a dictator and your partner has to do everything that you want. There's always an element of people can change, but I will tell you, usually they don't change that much. Mm. So the odds are in your favor. So as you know, about, well, it was New Year's Eve of 2020 during the pandemic. And I very intentionally chose to begin this during the pandemic, mm. which is another question you can ask if you want. I put up a profile that I had written. I had read every one of my books. I had taken notes on what I would be doing, what I wouldn't be doing. I had coached myself the same way that I coach clients and I was ready so that if the right man emerged quickly, I would know that this person was a strong contender and I would know exactly what I needed to do to make sure I was making a good choice and helping him understand who I really was and being safe, which I love about your practice, yes. being safe because safety is without safety, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters without safety. I love that about your your approach. I'm completely on board with that. And um, Carrie, my husband, answered that ad seven days into its posting. I had made a deal with myself that I, you know, it's not a numbers game. Yeah. People think it is. It's not. It's That's about. That's what you hear all the time. It's a numbers game. No. I've met people who've literally gone on 800 first dates. I'm going to give you the number that I went on four. <laughs> there was only one person who got a second date and I'm now married to him blissfully madly in love with him. And uh, it's not necessary. You can do so much work 
with your profile. Even if you're on an app, you can use a profile to share backend to just eliminate people who just aren't the right person for you in a kind way, but a very clear way right away. And so I only actually talked to 12 people on the phone. And I just got a note earlier from a client saying, I'm not getting that many real letters. I'm getting a lot of, hey, how, what's up? How you doing? Mm -hmm. At which I tell people to ignore. That's not real contact, especially not the kind of, <laughs> yeah, the kind of profile I write. It's so clear. If somebody just says, what's up? It means I'm just playing. I'm yeah. not serious about this at all. So I said, that's okay. I mean, I only talked to 12 people. I only went out on four first dates. I had a goal of only ever holding hands even with one more person in my life. And I did that. And I have an amazing relationship. And that's really, look, for people out there who they just want to play around, I get that. But probably this isn't the episode for you in that case. Mm -hmm. And I'm really talking to the people who want the love of their lives. They've they've done enough looking around they're really ready for the whole enchilada as I say being from Texas so yeah. yeah they're ready for it and and so that's what I help do and it works yeah so let's bounce back because I love the way that you explain that because it's going to actually give some people some clarity because you hear about cast your net out wide you know bringing all of these fish you know it's like and people get really overwhelmed by that means I need to be dating multiple people a lot of the time where's the time for me and something that you spoke about there was also being kind and respectful yourself because sometimes we can want those qualities in the other person but how are we living those qualities too how are we being kind and how are we being respectful to others and also to ourselves that self-kindness whether we speak to ourselves the way that we respect ourselves so would you say, therefore, that a huge part of being able to attract that person is about that self-love, self-care piece? I would for a couple of different reasons. One of them is really, it's not the truth. You hear this all the time that that people who haven't been treated with loving kindness as they grew up or people who don't feel very good about themselves, they can't love other people. Mm. Actually, a lot of women, especially who were treated harshly, are very good at loving other people. Okay. But the people that they allow themselves to love and be loved by are often not very kind to them. Mm. Kindness, and I'm so happy you wanted to do a little bit deeper dive on the whole concept of kindness because women are usually socialized, they're acculturated all over the world. This isn't just a, a one place in the world phenomenon. This is broad, global. They're really acculturated to believe that niceness is the same thing as kindness. Being nice means being accommodating. And I want you to be accommodating to a person who's safe for you to love, mm -hmm. but never at your expense, never at the expense of your safety, never at the expense of someone treating you worse than you're treating them. The kindness is not the same thing as niceness. In fact, sometimes to be kind, to have the best interest of yourself and your partner at stake, you have to speak some fairly hard truths. You can do it in a sincere, kind way without it saying they're a horrible human being, but you have to be willing to say what's not working. And if it still isn't working while you're dating, you have to be willing to walk. That takes courage. You know, I, I've been, I've been meeting with a lot of young women lately and, and for a number of reasons, the idea that choking is pleasurable 
has um, emerged. And part of that is in pornography in order to get more and more viewers. It's gotten more and more extreme. Um, But I know that women, there are women who do find it pleasurable. The research indicates they find it pleasurable because they think that means the man really desires them. But when men are interviewed, they see it as um, they enjoy terrifying women for the most part. Again, your mileage may vary. Yeah. But this is something that is a hallmark of abuse. And even though a person might say yes to it, it's, again, I'm speaking from a place of science. Please don't shoot the messenger. But it apparently starts to train the brain of the person doing this, who is almost always male. Women are almost always the one choked. The ones choking are always, almost always the ones who are bepinist, as I say. Mm. And um, so I'm hearing so much from, from these women. And the thing is, a man who is deeply kind, really kind. The idea that all men want this is actually very, very false. There's a hefty 25% of men who would never watch that ever. Yes. And who, who, in fact want to be devoted to one person so entirely that they actually don't watch pornography despite its ubiquity, despite the fact you can get it everywhere. So Mm -hmm. it's not true that you have to do these things. Part of being kind to yourself is asking, do I really want to do whatever it is? Do I really want to move in with you? Do I really want to get naked with you? Do I really want to engage in this particular sexual practice? Do Mm -hmm. I really want, whatever it is, do I really want to introduce you to my kids? Don't do anything you don't want to do. Your intuition is an evolutionarily derived force. It is an adaptation intended to save your life. Do not silence it. So talking about intuition and also I want to talk about attachment styles there because when you were talking about some of the things that maybe we accept as women and we may confuse niceness would you i know you've done extensive research on attachment styles would you say that some of that has a bearing on our perception of what being nice is for example absolutely um so just because i don't know how much time you want to spend on this we'll spend as much as you want but i'd like to start with three sentences that summarize each of the basic attachment styles. Yes, please do. So people with a secure attachment style believe that relationships are safe and their primary motivation in relationships is to be close and to provide mutual care and support. For example, when they hear a statement like, true or false, it is part of my job description in a relationship to take care of my partner's happiness. Yeah, okay. Now what's interesting is most people in the Western world right now think that what I just said is super creepy and codependent. <laughs> oh my gosh, you you expect me to take care of your happiness or or I, I yeah. get to expect somebody else to do that? That's terrible, that's so codependent. And I would have agreed at some point, what, one of the things that, that uh, I really enjoy about science is it frequently changes my mind. Okay. Facts should be allowed to change our opinion. Yeah. What I'm talking about is not opinion. It's fact. Mm -hmm. I hope everyone can let facts change their opinions. Life is much more exciting when people are able to do that and also much less painful. Yeah. So it turns out that the only attachment style that says, yes, 
it is my job to make my partner happy is secure people. Okay. And they get all the following benefits. So if this was codependent, we wouldn't expect them to have these wonderful, happy lives, but they do. They have more sex. They're happier with the sex that they have. They say the sex just gets better the longer they're together. Can you imagine? They're not the people who six months, a year, two years in are saying, oh, you know, oh. it's kind of plateaued. No, they're like, this is just getting better. But this is amazing. They are happier in their relationships. Their relationships last longer, usually a lifetime. They experience high levels of trust and high levels of love. Their kids do better. Who doesn't want all of this? Yes. That sounds amazing. So therefore, does a secure person have a better relationship if they are with a secure person then? So there's good news and bad news. <laughs> okay. The, the good news, there's a couple pieces of good news. One piece of good news is there's actually a, quite a lot of research on who pairs up with whom and what happens next. Okay. And secure attachers with other secure attachers are the most solid, stable, and happy bond. Mm -hmm. However, there is a phenomenon called earned security. Earned security is what happens when a secure attacher and a less secure attacher, somebody in one of the other categories, they pair up and the less secure attacher allows the secure person to lead to the path of happiness. Mm -hmm. Look, attachment styles can change. I'm about to talk about the other attachment styles and it's going to sound kind of dire and people frequently feel terrible about themselves when they realize that they aren't in the secure category yet. I want to emphasize the word yet. Yes. I am now a, a plus secure attacher and I was not. Yeah. And I knew that I was not. So what normally happens is that non-secure attachers bond with their opposite, which we'll discuss in a minute. And they play out a dynamic, which is the number one dynamic that leads to divorce. Okay. But if they know to look for someone secure and they know that this person has a lot to teach them instead of resisting it or thinking that the other person is boring, if they really understand this is your guru, let them lead. They know what they're talking about. Let them make your life better. They want to let it happen. Mm. Let it happen. Yeah. In that case, they too can become secure and have all these wonderful things. I see. The I bad see. news, of course, is that the vast majority of people don't know that. Mm. And so they get into this dynamic that usually doesn't really work. And even during the time that these folks are together, they're often extremely unhappy. Mm. And of course, my whole life is about preventing unhappiness. I, I do work with couples. Yeah. I work with people at any stage of dating and relating. Most of my clients are looking for their person. And the reason that I focused my practice there is it's a lot easier to prevent problems than solve them. Yes, prevention rather than cure. Yeah, you know who John Gottman is. He's the top yes. long-term relationship scientist slash therapist in the world. He and his wife, Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman, they have a bunch of books out. And Dr. Gottman, Dr. John Gottman endorsed my book. So you which got was, that 
one of the most exciting moments of my yeah. life. No kidding. But, you know, the reason he did that was that I was trying to do for people who are just meeting what he has always done for people who have already committed. Yes. yes. Let's help people show, let's show people the proven path. We're not guessing. This isn't guesswork here. We know what works. Mm. Yeah. Like I, I really, the, the thing that there's only one thing that ever really offends me. And that's when people think that my facts are just the same as anyone else's opinion. They're not. They're not even my facts. I didn't even do this research. I read science, so you don't have to, but you certainly can. It's all referenced in the back of the book. Yeah. I picked science that I know is not a flash in the pan. I looked for trends that have been ongoing for decades, and I still read science nearly every day. Yeah. And it, it does not contradict what mm -hmm. the generations before have found. So, you know, this is a path, and one of the big pathways is, if you're not secure, I want you to recognize that and yes. find someone who is secure. So with that said, would you like to discuss the people who aren't so secure? Absolutely, because the people who are listening to this thinking, OK, so if I'm not secure, what does that make me? <laughs> According to the science. <laughs> it still makes you a wonderful, lovely human being worthy of love and dignity and care. Beautiful. It still makes you that. And it means that you have a little bit of a challenge because probably earlier in your life, mostly early in childhood, the person you were attached to in childhood was inconsistent, yeah. possibly even neglectful or abusive. In those cases, the message that the child gets is the world is not safe. The people who are tasked with taking care of me cannot be relied upon. I'm kind of on my own. And people tend to go one of three ways with this. Again, I want to emphasize, if you aren't happy with what I'm about to describe, you can't change it. Mm -hmm. And attachment styles change all the time, but usually accidentally and often for the worse because people don't know what they're looking at. Now you will, and you'll have the tools to change it. Amazing. So one of the big things is a lot of people become what's called having an anxious attachment style, which means that they want relationships. They want the closeness that secure people have, but they're terrified they will be left. Mm -hmm. The things they do are meant to keep their lover close to them emotionally yeah. because they're afraid of being abandoned. And this tends to lead to some behaviors that aren't in your, your best interest, if this is you. And by the way, this was me for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of compassion for this, not just professionally, but personally, this was me for a long time. I wanted the brass ring that I saw lots of people out in the world grabbing because about 60 to 70% of adults in Western countries test as securely attached. So yeah. I saw all these secure, you know, everybody said, oh, the divorce rate is 50-50. No, it's not. It's not 50-50. Never has been 50-50. Since the year 2000, the divorce rate has been one third. That means two thirds of people are staying with that first partner for a lifetime. 
So this is doable. And I saw that it was doable. And I thought, why is this not doable for me? Well, let's look at some of the behaviors that anxious attachers engage in yeah. early in the mating process. And this is where I love to interrupt the process so people can find happiness, real mm -hmm. lasting happiness. One of the things is they meet secure partners that they then think are boring. Ah, uh, yes. Secure because partners don't bring the drama. Look, if you were raised with any kind of trauma, mm -hmm. traumatic bonding is a real thing. Bonding with people who make you feel like you, you don't quite know if they'll stay or not. They're, you're kind of on edge. That gets that excitement gets confused with passionate love. Mm -hmm. The lack of that excitement, the steady presence. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with, with people who've said, I met someone who was, and men and women, I've met someone who was absolutely perfect. All my friends thought this person was perfect. I thought this was per perfect, was per person was perfect. And I just couldn't attach. I just couldn't get into them. Or the more common way to express this is they ticked all the boxes, but I don't know. I was just kind of bored. I just couldn't get into them. And yeah. they see this as coincidental. Like coincidentally, I could, it's because they were secure that you couldn't get into them. The first thing to realize is it's a because thing. Yeah. So one of the things is they dismiss partners who could be really, really good for them. Okay. Really good for them. And by the way, they usually dismiss them with an excuse like, well, they just weren't good looking enough or tall enough or wealthy enough or whatever. Or good enough in bed. Look, secure attachers, the worst time is going to be the first time because they're going to learn you so thoroughly. It's going to be like mind blowing later on. Yeah. They have a growth mentality when it comes to sex. Everybody else thinks, oh, if it's not good the first time, better let it go, which is not empirically true. Okay. So that's another thing. Uh, anxious attachers tend to think, well, if the sex wasn't mind-blowing right at first, I need to just walk away. They also tend to have sex on the first date. Secure partners are not into that. They're, they're the ones I suspect. I do not have the evidence, but I will tell you. Most of my predictions that I have ever made about evidence have come true because when I have a hypothesis, it's based on a lot of evidence. Yeah. I am hypothesizing that the men who don't watch porn, the women who don't watch porn are almost all of them are secure. Mm. Secure people want their partner. They don't want anybody else. And if you will just take anyone who shows up, because they know you don't really know them yet. If you're trying to have sex on the first date, they kind of think something's wrong with you. Okay. So that's another mistake because the, I'm going to have sex right away with you move. I know for an absolute fact is something that other non-secure attachers prefer. In other words, the people who aren't going to make you happy because non-secure attachers bonding with other non-secure attachers yeah. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of breaking up. There's a lot of breaking up and getting back together. There's uh, a lot of divorce. There's a lot of this stuff that you don't want. There's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of contempt. There's a lot of, I'm not going to talk about that, stonewalling. There's a lot of what John Gottman calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Defensiveness, contempt, uh, criticism, stonewalling. There's all these things. And secure attachers just, they don't do that. So not having sex right away is a very good idea. Whether you're a man or a woman, very good idea. It appeals to the group of people that I want you to appeal to. It doesn't appeal to the group of people that I would like you not to appeal to anymore because it's, I'm not saying non-secure attachers are bad people. I'm saying if you're not a secure attacher, they're bad for you. 
It's yeah. not a dynamic that I want to see you embracing. Okay. You can fix it later sometimes, but boy, is it an uphill slog. Their whole therapy is devoted to it. Sue Johnson's book, Love Sense, is all about that. Um, mm -hmm. As you as you know, emotion-focused therapy. But it's a, it's a long, long, long slog. And even people who've written hugely influential works about just, just about attachment, like the book Attached, Amira Levine and Rachel Heller, even they say, if you're with somebody avoidant, which is we'll get to in a moment, yeah, you're going to do all the accommodating. Just accept that. Mm -hmm. They're not coming over to your way of doing things. You will always feel that you're not getting your emotional needs met. Yes. So as you said, you've mentioned avoidant then. So we spoke about the anxious attachment style and some of the behaviors that come from that too. And the difference between an anxious and an avoidant attachment style, what's the difference there? So secure people feel safe. Mm -hmm. They look for trust. Yeah. They expect trust. In fact, they don't mm -hmm. look for it because they, they assume this is what's going to happen. It, this is what I want. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I want to assume that. I want to have good reasons for assuming that. Um, anxious people assume that abandonment is going to happen and that causes them to cling too hard, try mm. to get involved emotionally very, very quickly, try to tell all their hard stories very, very fast. Tell if they have an STI, they want to tell it even before the first date, big mistake. Mm. Um, you know, uh, look, view Definitely. yourself as... Huh? I was just going to say, you said big mistake. So for those listening, they're probably going to want to know why that would be a big mistake to talk about an STI. Yeah. Can you, can you put a pin in that? We're going to come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. But I won't remember it. So will you bring us back to that? Thank I've you. I've got that. <laughs> as you see, my, my brain is kind of like a chicken. I'm pecking here and then I kind of forget completely about the grain that was over there. I will hold so, that one. Okay. So anyway, um, anxious people make those mistakes and also when they argue they tend to see every argument even over something really small first of all they try not to ever have an argument because that can spell being abandoned and then when they finally do have an argument they tend to really blow up uh, threaten to leave but really they don't want you to leave they want you to say oh no 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 i really love you it's actually what um, attachment style researchers call a protest behavior like when babies cry to get you to come closer See, okay. it's, it's their way of getting you to come closer and say, well, I'm going away now. And they're hoping yeah. you'll follow. Yeah. Okay. Which is also dangerous because that appeals to stalkers sometimes. And mm. I don't want that. Okay. okay. So avoidant attachers. Yes. Avoidant people aren't usually afraid of being abandoned. They definitely do not feel safe in their relationships. They are also acting from fear and living with fear that feels awful to them, just like anxious people are. But what they're afraid of, what they're really afraid of is being smothered, being needed too much. They're really afraid of it. And the saddest thing of all is guess who wants to be with who? Avoidant people love to be with anxious people and anxious people love to bond with avoidant people. And that dynamic of I'm going to chase you and you're going to run every time I chase you, but then you're going to come to me when I'm not, no longer that dynamic is the top dynamic that leads to divorce. Lots of drama, lots of divorce. And research has shown there was a four year longitudinal study, mean, meaning following the same people over a span of time, in this case, four years. Yeah. Where researchers looked 
at hundreds of people who were out there in the world dating. They specifically looked at what attachment style chooses whom. And they never once in four years found that an avoidant person chose another avoidant person. <laughs> You'd think, oh, well, avoidant people are afraid of needing, yeah. being needed too much. So ideally, it would make sense to find somebody else who also doesn't want to be needed too much. But unfortunately, what actually happens is those relationships never get off the ground because people who, with an avoidance style have their own set of relationship errors that they make, things that aren't in their best interest. And one of them is my way or the highway. They typically want to call all the shots because that makes them feel safe. It pushes their partner. Look, somebody who's completely inflexible when their partner says, well, I want to have a conversation now. And they say, well, I'm doing it when I want to, or no, mm -hmm. or, or uh, just walks out of the room. Somebody who effectively says, things are on my terms, not yours. Yeah. Somebody really inflexible, somebody really critical. That's another big hallmark of avoidant attachers is they criticize their partners. And it's not because they're actually mean spirited. Usually the reason that, that somebody with an avoidant style criticizes their partners, pushes their partners away is because it's the only way they feel safe. They love you, but the way that they love you, the closer you get, the more and more terrified they feel. And anyone who feels terrified is going to run or yeah. fight. So mm -hmm. they do both. They run and they fight. And yeah. you know, if you're an anxious attacher, when your partner runs or fights, you feel terrified because yes. the thing you want most in the world is closeness. They're not giving it and you want it more than anything. So what do you do? Start doing, you start chasing them harder for it and they yeah. push you even harder. Yeah. Totally. I've had people who hired me specifically to get them to break up with the person that was avoidant anxious attachers who wanted to break up with the person who was an avoidant attacher because they'd been in it for a long time. They tried to fix it. They couldn't. And they said, whatever you do, don't let me get back with this person. Okay. And we had to have frequent check-ins because otherwise they would. They had realized from their own experience, this isn't working for me. Part of being yeah. kind to yourself is acknowledging, is this working for me? Mm. You're not married yet. Yeah. I understand the desire to take care of another person and, and be self-sacrificing for another person. And I have done that for the people that I love. And I am doing that for the people mm -hmm. that I love, but I chose them already. Yes. When you're dating, the whole purpose of dating is to see whether you're making a good choice. Mm. Don't act like you're married when you're dating and then act like you're still assessing it after you're married. But yeah. a lot of people do that. They wait. They're so they're so terrified for things not to work out that they actually get married, turning one eye, turning a blind eye. And then when they get married, they look at it very clearly and realize they don't do this, that and the other thing for me or they do this, that and the other thing way too much for me. So there's a lot of mistakes that, that get made. And the dynamic is especially hurtful to everyone. If one partner has an anxious style and the other person has an avoidance style. And I hear what you're saying. And then also there's that benefit of saying, okay, so it would help for an, an insecure or an avoidance style or an anxious style to get with a secure person. Yes. What's the benefit of a secure person then to be with an anxious person or an avoidant person? Because I can see how it can flow yet one way, but for the secure person, what's in it for them? Well, really not much if the person that they partner with who is not secure fails to see that this this secure person 
is a guru, a gold mine, someone who can lead them to real happiness. Yeah. If, if a secure person chooses a mate who cannot let themselves be loved, a big part of loving is letting yourself be loved. And those of us who were raised with hinky experiences or had a terrible crushing loss early in our adult life with part of the issue is not, do I love them? A huge part of the issue is, can I let myself be loved? And that's for, true for people mm -hmm. who have the anxious style or the avoidance style. Can I let myself be loved? Yeah. That's a, such a powerful question. And for those who are listening to this, I would encourage you to journal on that. Really journal on that question and see what comes up for you when you say that, because you may find that there are lots of paradigms or limiting beliefs. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. All of these things that might come cropping up for you, because that is such a powerful question. Yeah. I do want to bounce back because I have got this in my mind about the STI. Before See, I, I told even you forget. I forget, I was totally forgetting. Yeah, before I forget, you forget, and then the listeners are like, they didn't even talk about it. So let's bounce on that one. So why not divulge that information at the start? Well, there are a number of reasons. One of them is that secure people think it's bizarre. I want to tell you how a secure partner looks at the world. Yeah, please. When they first meet you, they know that they don't know you yet. <laughs> and they reveal things about themselves as they know you, just like they would with anyone else in the world. The reason that they don't come on hot and heavy and try to tell you that you're gorgeous or you're so accomplished or they don't lay it on thick. And the reason that they don't try to get you in bed right away or don't try to go to bed with mm -hmm. you right away. The reason they don't do those things is they want to do those things with someone they know. So I like to use the onion analogy with a secure person. Everything they tell you is true. But when they first meet you, the level of truth you get is the outer layer of the onion. Okay. Example. Can you tell me what if your ex were here right now, what would she say was the reason for your breakup? A secure partner, might, a secure person might say, well, you know, we were actually married for a long time and we we actually just developed very different interests and there just wasn't much um, intimacy to come back to. That's true, but it doesn't tell you all the gory details of, well, how did that happen? Yeah. Where's the drama? What did you try? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's all true, but it's something you could tell to anyone. Yes. And so a secure person will tell you something that if you then never see them again and they tell all your friends, they go to your social media and they post about you specifically and they at you on it. Mm -hmm. You don't know anything embarrassing. Yeah. It's not even self-protective. They just think, I share the level of detail that makes sense given how well I know you. Mm -hmm. And the rest of us, and I say us because I would return to being anxious tomorrow, I think, if I weren't with someone secure. Yeah. The rest of us go, I have to know you right now yes. in case it doesn't work out. Secure people aren't worried about that. And mm -hmm. so one of the problems is secure people think, okay, that's a big overshare. Something's really, I don't know what's wrong, but it makes me uncomfortable. They're not in, into it. Mm -hmm. So the people that would be the best for you, usually um, just, they, they just feel like something's off and they will go away. Yeah. Um, Another reason that's much more personal to you if you have an STI, and I've worked with 
many, many people who have STIs. And I really work hard to destigmatize it because the fact of the matter is it's so common to have one. And the ones that most people have are stigmatizing, but they don't kill you. They don't hurt you in any way. As long as you get them treated, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Okay. So, um, another reason though, is do you really want someone that you don't even know to have this information about you? Have they deserved, have they earned it? That's a question I want everybody to start. Maybe write it down on a note. Ask yourself before you say anything, have they earned it? Mm. Have they earned it? You know, you do that with other people, hopefully. Have they earned it? Yeah. yeah. Secure people act as if, not that they've got a chip on your sh their shoulder, just we're not that intimate yet. Mm. Yeah. We don't know each other that well yet. So, that's another mistake is, have they earned it? No, now they've got this story about you that they could choose to tell to anybody. Yeah. And, and by the way, you find it embarrassing enough that you're wanting to tell them up front in case they reject you. So clearly this isn't something that you actually want everyone to know. And this is about any hard truth. We're using STIs as, uh, the other thing is yeah. give the relationship to some time. People glom onto their, literally their brain hangs on to the information they hear that's worst and first, worst and first. That's okay. a cognitive, that it, scientifically proven way that the brain works. So mm. if people find out that you have an STI, you love kids, you throw a great party, um, you, you uh, enjoy rom-coms and thrillers, and uh, your favorite hobbies are X, Y, and Z, and all your friends say you're the kindest person that they ever met. They heard STIs first. <laughs> they need to know all this other stuff about you and then the STI. Look, yeah. you would never go to an interview and say, blurt out your absolute worst quality. Yeah. That that you, employer's going to go, are you unhinged? <laughs> In many ways, looking for a life partner is looking for the right job or rather the right candidate to fill a job for you. But jobs only help you with your finances and maybe your sense of meaning in the world. That's just two things. Yeah. Let me show you what relationships have been proven for decades now to bring about if you get into a good one. Therefore, it is worth doing this right. Yeah. If you do this right, you will have more sex than other people, including people who live together, by the way. People are happily married, have more sex. They have better sex. They report a much higher quality of sex. In fact, women in these relationships report that they virtually always, which is not the case for people in any other kind of relationship or women in any other kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So more sex, better sex, they are happier in a general way. They're, and now I'm talking about everyone, everyone, more sex, better sex. Everyone is happier by about a third, just in their life in general. Then when you look at their relationship, they're happier in their relationship than other people are. Okay. Then you find out that they're also healthier and mm -hmm. that they have less illness at the end of their lives, that they live longer, that they, correct, that, that they make more money because they're not worried about their relationship. Think about how much time it takes you to get over a breakup, get into relationships, be online. It's a job. Now oh. you don't have to do that job anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not getting over anybody because you're with the right person. Yay, you. So 
they they actually progress faster in their careers and they make more money. The their kids do better in every way. That's ten things. Yeah. Job, two things. Cor right person, ten things. So we act like the ten thing thing should just happen magically. We don't need any training. We don't need any facts. We don't need any education. Yes, we do. Mm. Yes, we do. It's why I wrote these books. Yes, we do. It's why I see clients. Yes, we do. We need help in this area. We it do. is the biggest decision you will ever make, and it should not be a crapshoot. Yeah. It should and not be. There's no need for it to be. We've got 60, 70 years of data out there. Why should it be a crapshoot? Why shouldn't you benefit from that? And maybe that's exactly as you said in terms of the opinions out there. A lot of our decisions are based upon opinions and you've come with this amazing, you know, you've got these hypotheses, you've got your book, which talks about scientific facts and something you spoke about earlier and you mentioned the word intuition there. And sometimes when people hear the word intuition, they can think, oh, it's a bit woo-woo. Ooh, no, what's that about? <laughs> How can I use my intuition to guide me to making better decisions? And I would love for you to share what your thoughts are on that. Okay, so there's actually quite a bit of research on intuition. I formerly would have said it was all woo-woo nonsense until I actually read the, the research. And again, the research is, it's not one person one time, because I never trust that. It's like one study, a woo-woo. Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking for a body of evidence, and we have it here. So the, again, let facts change your mind. Don't yes. let your mind change the facts, please. Mm -hmm. You're, you will never be benefited from burying your head in the sand and acting like facts aren't facts. Yeah. So the fact is intuition is a real thing. Um, intuition is an evolved mechanism, meaning it's something that helped our ancestors survive and reproduce and for their children to survive and reproduce. It's an adaptation. Adaptation doesn't necessarily mean something's good, by the way. Rape is also an adaptation and it is bad. I'm not placing a value judgment on whether what we have evolved to do is good or bad. Some of it is evil. Okay. Yeah. Some of it's evil, but in the case of intuition, specifically with women, you know, when you're in the presence of someone who could be dangerous and instead of allowing that to sexually excite you, how about if you don't see that person? Okay. How about if you don't override that when this person tries to convince you that they have your best interests at heart, when your gut knows, and you know what is really interesting? The gut has mm -hmm. a nerve that runs to the brain. Gut feelings are gut feelings. They get communicated to the brain. Okay. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating because you use that word gut feeling and people just say it in language, but it actually exists. It's a real thing. Real Do thing. not allow any evidence to override that. If you have a gut feeling that this person is wrong. Now I do get questions from people who've been badly abused who say they no longer know if their flight response is because of a gut feeling or they're just terrified of everybody, even good people. And that is, I will say a hefty part of my client practice mm. is helping people to identify that and choose healthy people. So if you feel like, I don't know what my gut says, fair enough, I get it. But if you do, if you know what your gut is saying, going back to the choking example, yeah. in studies, a lot of women say that it feels terrifying. Mm. That the reason they're doing it is oh, my partner wanted to, and 
I thought it would be fun. And I said, yes, but then it wasn't fun. Yeah. yeah. But the research shows they then do it again. Mm. There's a lot of new research on this phenomenon, the whole choking thing. Yeah. Your gut is saying that in part because choking is the second most common way that women are killed. Mm. Now, we've spoken about choking. This is something that I know the listeners are going to be probably tapping into. Now, is this based upon voluntary? This is something that the women are willing to give a go, or is this forced? What's the evidence showing that it's forced? Yes, it's something that some people are forced to do, and it's something that many um, many people consent to do, but it's not informed consent. informed consent means I know what's really going to happen. I understand all the possible outcomes and consequences of saying yes to this. And as you probably know, in research, you're, you're required to get informed consent. You're not, you can't just say, Hey, you want to be in my study? You have to tell people here are the possible things that could happen to you. Good and bad as a result of being in the study, you have to give them informed consent. Nobody really has informed consent when they go into a consensual, I put air quotes because Really, consent means that you know what's going to happen. Yeah. So what doctors are now saying is there's no way to be safely choked. You can't put enough pressure to start depriving air without impinging on structures that are necessary for life. And sometimes the damage doesn't happen for days. You won't even know that that's what caused the damage. So part of informed consent would be a checklist of here are all the things that could happen to you physically. And it is a long and terrifying list. Mm. Virtually no one who consents has consented to that. They don't understand that that could happen. And by the way, neither neither do the guys who are doing the choking. Mm. A lot of them, they saw it in porn. It looked like it'd be fun to try. I'm not saying they're all evil. Um. But I, I am saying that if you have an intuition that this isn't for you, well, evolutionarily, your intuition would probably say it's not for you because it's not a safe activity. Yeah. And so another, so intuition tends to protect people from potentially deadly people in circumstances, mm-hmm. but it also protects people in any area where they have a huge amount of knowledge. For example, I've spent it takes 10,000 uh, hours to become truly expert at anything. We all know this because of Malcolm Gladwell's book. And he, of course, he does all his stuff based on science too, which is why I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't always agree with the conclusions he draws from some of the science, but honestly, uh, I think he's right most of the time. And that's, you know, you don't check your critical thinking at the door. Yes. Um, but, but, I've got more than 10,000 hours of experience in what it is that I do. And every now and then I have an intuition about what is happening with someone that one of my clients is seeing. And I have not been wrong yet. So when it comes, and I just want to bounce back to that whole, the choking thing as well, because if anybody's listened to that and whether you know it or not, or you feel some level of abuse in any relationship, I will strongly encourage you to reach out to people for support. Um, there's national support lines, domestic abuse lines, to really speak to people who can be there to support you. If you are listening to this and you're just feeling a bit activated by that or you want to speak out, I just really want to emphasize that there are support mechanisms out there for you. 
There certainly are. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you that you brought that up. Um, I have worked with women who have been through this and gave consent. But again, it wasn't informed. They didn't realize that they were going to feel terrified for their lives. They didn't they didn't know. They didn't realize that their self-esteem. I've worked with women who have PTSD from this. They didn't realize what it was going to do to their sense that they were just an object that a man could take out of the world at any minute. Yeah, that's a real deep-seated fear. When yes. it comes to intuition, then, do we, could we speak about the gut feeling? Are there any symptoms that we have in our body? Do we literally feel something in our tummy area when it comes to gut? Or will we sense it in other areas of our body, too? It kind of, your mileage may vary. I mean... I know that one of the times that I'm going against my intuition, I actually developing tingling and some numbness in my arms. Ooh, okay. um, it's not always in my gut for me. Mm. Or I sometimes have dreams where, so your intuition, we know where it is in the brain, by the way, it's in the right hemisphere or the right half of your brain. Yeah. And we know how the right hemisphere communicates with the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is your conscious thought and your language. And of course, that's oversimplifying. It's not only that, but it, it, but it has that to it. The right hemisphere helps you interpret something like instead of what's that in the road ahead? What's that in the road ahead? The, the, the right side of your brain is what helps you know the difference between those two things. Um, so it, and, and it's also where your your intuition resides. So uh but how does that manifest in your body? Your mileage may vary. I mean, I do also get gut feelings, but I also have times when I've had dreams, and I talk about this, as you know, in, in my books, where I've had dreams where my I actually had a dream where my conscious side of my brain, the left hemisphere, said, you can't do this, stop now. But that was coming from my right side after it failed through having my arms fall asleep and my gut be upset and developing a panic attack. When that didn't stop me, I did actually have yeah. dreams that told me to stop something. So I have very well-developed intuition that I now have learned. Do not ignore it. There you go. So that's an awareness piece for people also, you know, watching or listening to this is really start to focus on notice what is happening in your body. And because that may be a trend or a pattern when it comes to meeting people when you're dating and in a relationship to say, where is that showing up for me in my body? And also, you know, is my breathing changing? You know, is my going shadow deep in? You no, know, is it deep? Is it shallow? Am I tense in my shoulders? Whatever that might be for you, just really start to notice where that's showing up for you in your body. Because there's so much as well, like regarding like biology and also, you know, ancestral psychology because some people don't really understand much about you know how why we do the things that we do because of our mating biology like why are yeah. women seems why do they seem to get more attached you know to a man and from what you share in your book and i do encourage and invite people to really purchase this book because it's so fascinating is that it goes deeply into the biology around it all the biology why it seems that men don't tend to commits more and it's so much around the biology of that I wondered if you could just like briefly just explain, explain a little bit about the biology and why that may make us make certain decisions sure well um first of all men do want to commit but they do most men have a mating psychology they have two mating psychologies running at the same time it's like having two apps open on your phone at the same time mm -hmm. one of the apps says 
have sex with lots of people. And the other app says, have sex with just one person. Choose a mate and devote to devote your time to her. And most men are going to, um, if they can, they're going to have sex with lots of people. And there's a certain profile of the men who can. And if they uh, can't or women are scarce, cultures where women are scarce, men offer what they know women want. Women primarily only have the one app. And the app is get committed. Now, sometimes they use casual sex to try to get committed. There are studies showing that 75% of women who have casual sex are trying to turn that into a relationship. Yeah, okay. There are other studies that show that 75% of women who have a friends with benefits situation where they know that this is the wrong person for them. I'm talking heterosexual relationships. There's just not that much data still on mm -hmm. relationships that, that uh, are about anybody but cis het people. Mm -hmm. People are born in the body that feels like the right body for them uh, in terms of gender and people who are attracted to the gender that they do not identify with. So cisgender heterosexual people. Um, so that's what I'm talking about right now. But there's research showing um, really over the years, including recent research, that most women who think they're in a casual situation wind up becoming attached even when they know that this is the wrong man for them. Mm. So women are really wired for, yeah, we have a casual app too, but our casual app really often doesn't remain casual. It kind of, it, it's next to the app for commitment. And then we think, oh, we're just going to use this app. It'll be a lot of fun, the casual app. And then the casual app's like, haha, we're moving over to the commitment app now. <laughs> okay. Now your mileage may vary. That leaves a solid quarter of women who can, you know, play and walk away whistling a happy tune. But the biology behind this is, look, let's say that I just wanted to have sex with a thousand men. I just wanted to. I can only have one baby a year though, unless I conceive twins or triplets. So if you look at the fact that our psychology, not just how tall we are and, and whether our gen genitals are mostly inside or outside, which is physical stuff, we inherit our physical stuff because it helps us survive and reproduce. We also inherit our thoughts because they help us survive and reproduce. Don't believe me? Then why do women all over the world say they have to have a guy who's six feet tall or taller? Mm. That doesn't really matter in most uh, westernized cultures right now yeah. in, in terms of whether you can survive, does it? Yeah. No, but it did. It mattered to our ancestral mothers a lot because those men could protect me from getting raped by the other men. Yeah. And those men could keep me safe from wild animals. And those men could command more resources from the other men and provide more for me and my kids. So it mattered a lot a long time ago. And women still care about it. They still want it, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense now. Mm. We want a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Again, just because something's an adaptation, it's an adaptation a lot of times for something that doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. I want fat salt and sweet. I want it. But you know what? It's causing an epidemic of diabetes all over the westernized world. Yeah. Now in the ancient past, which is where our wants, our thoughts and feelings come from. It doesn't come from today or 1960. It comes from time out of mind. It comes from 200,000 years ago when people first evolved. 
in that time, if you wanted salad with no dressing on it, you were dying. You had to snarf all the densely caloric food as soon as you could get it. That's why when we start eating something fatty or sweet or salty, we're like, oh, I want to eat it faster and faster and more and more. And that's true of everybody all. Why, yes. you know, okay, why do you want that? Mm. Everyone wants it. That's an inherited want. The sooner people can accept that our bodies were shaped by evolution, but so were our preferences, the sooner their lives will become easier. Because I then... want a provider and a protector because mm. when my ancestral mothers got that, their kids survived. And the mm. women who didn't get that right now today in hunter-gatherer societies, even though they share, even though they share, because this is a common argument is, but they share, they do. And the kids who survive the most have a willing and able provider and protector. You see, this are, these are the facts that Raina is dropping here. And I really want to you know, really emphasize that this is not opinions. This is the facts. And we are sharing this with you so that you can make and use your discernment on what you do with this information. Because when you do start to appreciate that a lot of this is ancestral psychology, biology, then you are empowered to make different choices. You Until are. And one of them is don't choose the tall guy every time. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I want to make it really clear. I am I, I, because I know I get blow blowback from this. I am not saying all women are this way. There is no all women. There's no all men. There's no. There's a whole rainbow of, of preferences in the world. But I am saying science could not be clearer. Most of the people most of the time feel this way. Yeah. It is demonstrably in evidence every single place in the world that women would prefer to not have a bunch of casual sex if they can get mm. someone to love them. Not all women have that option. You know, there are times women choose a lot of casual sex. Again, we, we have the app. One of the times we activate the casual sex app is there was a war. There aren't enough men anymore. Yeah. My choice is either have no babies or have babies with someone who's not going to be my guy. Mm. We also see this happening in really poor communities where a lot of the population is put in prison, a lot of the male population, especially. You can predict when women start having children and whether they demand commitment first by whether the men around them are going to survive or going to be physically present. Mm. We're still, we have the app for casual sex, but men have the app for casual sex is just fun. And where do they get that app from? They get that app from, look, if a man has sex with a thousand women a year, he could potentially create a thousand new lives. Yes. To some extent, if even a few men do that and they have lots of surviving children, their male children are going to have that same psychology, which is going to eventually result in men having much more of a preference than women have for opening that app just for fun. Yes. So I want to emphasize your mileage may vary. Maybe you're a man who doesn't want that. Look, the, the gender distribution of any behavior is more similar than different. Okay. But where you see differences, the differences are in favor of men love that app. They also love the, I want a wife app because mm -hmm. the, they always had better odds of their children surviving if they devoted all their resources to that one woman and those children. So men have benefited in terms of and again, this isn't conscious. It's not like men thought, you know what? I'm going to have sex with a bunch of women and also this woman in the hopes that my genes get cast far and wide and that I have, 
they're not thinking like that. It's like men prefer another example of you want the stuff you want. And it was inherited. Men everywhere in the world prefer a 0.7 waist to hip ratio in their partners. Yes. It's a mathematical law. Yeah. 0.7 just happens to be associated with the highest levels of fertility and fecundity, meaning able to get pregnant the most easily and the most often. Yes. It's not like men are walking around going, hmm, let me get something out and measure that. Oh, yeah, it's 0.7, which means that she can have more babies more easily. I'm totally tapping that. They're not thinking that. They just know what they like. But why do they like it? Mm, yeah. We inherit what we want. Not everything we want is good. Not everything we want is good. Yeah. yeah. The men who want endless access to youth and beauty, endless sexual access to that, a lot of them consume a lot of porn and a lot of the girls in that porn are underage mm. and not there voluntarily. That's not a healthy thing to want. Yeah. So when we start to dig deep and we start to ask ourselves why we want it, we might know what we want, but why do we want it? Exactly. I want burgers all day, by the way. Yeah. That's not a healthy thing to want. I'm not saying it's awful for me to ever have a burger. I'm not saying men who want porn are awful people. But I'm saying when you look at actual health of what furthers the individual's long lasting happiness, that's not a healthy thing to want. Neither are burgers, but I want the burgers and these guys want the fries. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they want this and I get why they want it. I'm not saying they're evil to want it. I am saying that fast food establishments cater to my want. That's not good for me. And Pornhub caters, caters to a want that's not healthy. Yeah. That, yeah. That caters to it, but that's a different question. So men have always benefited from having both apps open. I will tell you that they respond to certain cues from women to help them close the short-term app and open up the long-term app and stay there. And those behavioral cues are, don't have sex with the guy right away for a lot of reasons. Yeah. It doesn't get you pregnant unintentionally. It doesn't get you an STI. By the way, I need to emphasize, I'm a feminist. I want women to have all the same rights that men have. I want women to walk through the world safely. I want them to be completely happy. I want yeah. every, and, and in fact, I want this for everyone. I don't even just want it for women. Yeah. And I know what I'm saying is going to just piss a lot of people off. And that's just the way it is. When science changes, I'll be the first to let you know, but it couldn't be clearer. And the science I'm talking about has been going on for decades and I'm reading books constantly. It's still happening right now today. The science is still showing these exact same things. I hate to yes. be, I, what I wish I could say is do whatever you want and it'll all work out great. But I can't say that because it's not necessarily so. I'm in the business of what makes people really happy. What we know makes most people happy most of the time. If your mileage differs from what I'm saying, then I'm fully in support of you doing what works for you. I really and truly am. But my yeah. job is to say where the odds are and this is where they are. Absolutely. All we can do is provide information and it's for you. They say knowledge is power, but what you do with that knowledge is powerful. So it's entirely up to you in terms of what you do with this information that is given to you. And as you can see, there are biological reasons, there's psychology reasons. You know, Duana has shared so much here and I want to invite you just to let it simmer, let it, let it soak, just bathe in this information and see how it shows up for you. Because then... The choice is yours. <laughs> we have free will and we have choices. So the choice is absolutely yours in terms of what you do with this information. And we are talking about love here, Dwayna, and we've mentioned it, dating, love. And I do always like to ask my guests what their personal definition of love is. And I would love for you to share in terms of the romantic context, 
what your personal definition of love means. What does it mean to you? There is a judge who decades ago was hearing a case on whether something was pornographic or not. At that time, transporting pornography over state lines was illegal. And he was asked to define pornography. And he said, I can't tell you what it is, but I sure know it when I see it. <laughs> I don't think anybody has just one definition of love. There's a biochemical yeah. definition that taps into romantic love. There are mm -hmm. emotional definitions that tap into romantic love. I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I know it when I feel it. And I know that you know it when you feel it. And I know that the idea that passionate romantic love didn't exist before the the medieval times with uh, knights and their ladies and all that. I had a historian tell me that passionate love had never existed before then. I said, explain to me Song of Solomon, please. <laughs> 7,000 years old. Research Only all over 7, the world. years yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> There's research all over the world that, that shows that in every place and time that we have any data for at all, every place and time, including right now today in every society that's ever been studied out of more than 130 societies and cultures, women really try to be the one that he loves. And why would that be? Because when men love you, they stay. And when they stay, your children live. And it's not like we have any more conscious awareness of that than the guy who wants the 0.7 waist to hip ratio. But that's why we want it. Love is, it's worth everything. You know, I know all this and People sometimes say, oh, Dwayne, you know, you've just taken all the mystery out of it. It can't be fun anymore. And I've got to tell you, I look at my husband every day and I'm madly in love with him. I am madly in love with this man. Yeah. And that's absolutely. It doesn't change it at all. If you tell me how digestion works and then you feed me a <laughs> juicy steak, I'm going to be like, mm, that steak is good. It doesn't change it at all. The experience is the same. And yeah. I want people to have that experience. It's the best. And I want them to have it in a lasting way, not just. Not just during the first 36 or 90 days of traumatic pair bonding, after which it becomes drama and trouble. Yeah. And talking about your love relationship that you have and to your husband now, you know, husband, since being with him, what would you say are some of the key learnings that you've acquired in this in this relationship with him? That I chose wisely and that uh and that deciding to do this the exact way that I teach people to do it was exactly what to do, including mastering my fear. I'm going to tell you, if you're not a secure attacher and you get with somebody secure, it's not going to be like it becomes easy right away. Mm. A lot of times the feeling that non-secure attachers have when they get with someone secure, initially it's boredom. And then it's, I don't deserve you. You're too good for me. Mm. And that's an uncomfortable feeling. It's terrifying because you think, what if they discover it? They're going to leave. Or they're going to need me too much and I'm going to need to run away. Learning to sit with the fear. A lot of what I help people do is battle their past and forge a way to the ability to say yes to love that will be happy for them. The, the ability, because you know this from your own work, sometimes people find the right person and they're terrified. And I know that I was too. And so one of the things I've learned is it really is worthwhile to sit with discomfort, to do the thing that you know will work, just like it's really been worthwhile for me to almost never eat red meat yeah. for a lot of reasons, even though when I smell it, I still want it every time. <laughs> you know, it's been really worth it to yeah. train myself to do something that maybe evolution doesn't necessarily want me to do. And it can be really worth it to train myself to do something that maybe my attachment style says yeah. is too good for me. 
because now, you know, I did the hard work on the front end and this is what I teach people to do. It feels unnatural. It feels difficult. I did the hard work on the front end and now every day is just easy. Every day is just easy. And when I speak to my clients who get to that stage where they are in that love relationship and they just said, it feels effortless and easy. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and how does that, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, wow. Like, wow. Like, this is amazing. And everything that you shared there, and I really am inspired and moved by the work that you do with your clients um, in terms of helping them to unpack these these limiting beliefs, these attachments, are these fears to move them to that place of happiness. As you said, everybody to be in that place of happiness. And that's what you want for people. I, just... I want you to pick someone where you become so close because you are so safe with this person and they care about you so much that if you have a moment, as I did a few months ago, where you wake up crying on your partner's shoulder sobbing that you know you you are terrified that they're going to leave you that happened to me a few months ago i had a couple really hor horrible losses in my life and i just realized i feel safe with you and what if that changes mm. and he just held me and said i want you in my life for always and I will always be here. And you can always tell me when you feel like this. And I will always say the same thing. Oh. And I will tell you, I've never felt afraid since. If you do the hard work on the front end to really be safe, that's one of the things that really draws me to your work. You are so clear that safety is absolutely key. You cannot, you cannot have a happy relationship founded on drama, but you sure can and will based on safety. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Drena, this has been such a delightful conversation. I've just felt so moved and inspired by everything that you've shared. And I want to thank you so much for your time, for your attention, because everybody listening to this, they just got a whole new piece of information that hasn't been covered on my show before. So I want to thank you for bringing this to our awareness. And I want to encourage people to pick up a copy of your books as well and um, I've read it as I said before I found it completely inspiring new information was given to me and it's one that I will read over again like this is something that I read over and over again because it's a bit like a training manual I kind of found it in terms of just helping me and helping my clients going forward so Dwayne thank you you're so welcome you're so welcome what would be one key message I know we've spoken about a lot today but what would be one key message that you could help our listeners to have to help them on their journey of love life and relationships well find someone kind and respectful and be someone kind and respectful because mm -hmm. it really is going to make or break your journey and if you have identified yourself as someone who uh, feels afraid in relationships rather than safe if that's your if your natural inclination is not to feel safe mm -hmm then I encourage you to learn everything you can about the people who do feel safe and how they act, how they behave, and then only date those people. Not because, not because people who don't feel inherently safe are bad people, but because I want you to be happy. And this will make you happy. Yeah. Oh, a wonderful parting note. Joanna, again, thank you so much for your time for your energy, for all of the wisdom that you have 
imparted on us today. And for everybody else who has listened, before we go actually going, I would love for you to let the listeners know where they can find you or to reach out to you. And if you have any events coming up that they would be able to tune into. They can find me at lovesciencemedia.com. Lovesciencemedia.com. And there are 10, 12, no, 12 years of material on there. 12 years of material on there. Um, 100 hours of podcast. I don't even know how many hours of podcast. Uh, Links to all my books and uh, lots of free content. And there's a way to email me. I answer every email that I receive. And I also do um, free 15 minute meetups. You know, I send, I send you people sometimes and, um, and you know, there's different approaches work for different people. So if you want to email me, feel free to email me. And I answer every, every single one of them. And I'd be happy to hear from you. Absolutely. We've had great email conversations too. And yes, she does answer the emails and such a beautiful, warm tone. I absolutely love your energy, Drena. And I am going to drop all of your little links into the show notes too. So feel free to check that out. And again, once again, thank you so much for your time. And for everybody else who has listened to this wonderful conversation between myself and Dwayna, I want to thank you for your time, for your attention and your energy. And until the next episode of Real Relationship Talk, the podcast, you take great care of yourself and others too. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, make sure to check out the show notes in the description with all the important links and how to connect with and follow Teresha directly. If you are motivated and encouraged after listening to this, please follow and subscribe to this podcast. Hey, and whilst you're there, go ahead and leave a five-star rating and add a review. We would love to hear what aha moments there were for you. And you know that saying, sharing is caring. So tell your family and friends about this podcast too. So until next time, take great care of yourself and others too.